This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I am once again honored to be representing my friends at New Society Publishers, the book publishers that were a big inspiration to me even before I started working with ecologies and natural buildings and way before podcasting. Their titles like The Natural Plaster Book and Timber Framing for the Rest of Us really made me believe that I could build my own home, which I eventually did. And later volumes like Ecopreneuring, Unlearn Rewild, and Building Community have offered tons of inspiration and even helped to shape my worldview. Whether you're looking for practical tips on growing and preserving food, exploring complex challenges in your own life, or sometimes just searching for hope and inspiration in a crazy world where you don't feel like you fit in, you'll find exactly what you're looking for and more at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So my guest today needs no introduction if you've been paying attention to the Regen Ag scene any time in the last decade. But just in case you're new to the topic and this community, let me catch you up to speed. So John Kempf is an entrepreneur, speaker, podcast host, and teacher. He is passionate about the potential of well-managed agricultural ecosystems to reverse ecological degradation. It is John's mission to have regenerative models of agricultural management become the mainstream globally by the year 2040. Now, in addition to being a grower, John is the founder of Advancing Eco-Agriculture, Crop Health Labs, Ozadia, and the Regenerative Agriculture Academy. He hosts the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast, where he interviews top growers and scientists about the principles and practices of implementing regenerative agriculture on a large scale. Now, I've had John on the show twice now, and in the first conversation, I didn't know much about him or his work, and so we covered many of the softball questions about things like the definition of Regen Ag and its importance in the new ecological food system. But since then, I've become an avid listener of his podcast and have much better understanding of just how important his work and that of his companies have become in leading the way in this scene. And as a result, I wanted to explore some of the deeper questions that very few people have enough of an overview in this movement to be able to see, and that's exactly what we cover in this session. Together, John and I navigate where Regen Ag is in this current moment and the drivers that have brought it this far. John reflects on the patterns and the learnings from the vast clientele of AEA, about the commonalities and characteristics of successful farmers who've transitioned to regenerative management as well as those of the coaches and the consultants that are effective in assisting them in their journeys. We also look into the influences outside of farming directly, the external factors that set boundaries on producers from the large food companies, retail outlets, commodities trade investors, and politicians that wield so much power over this industry. Now, since John's work is already one of my go-to sources for information on the newest innovations and the state of progress for Regen Ag, it was a real unique pleasure to be able to gain insight into his vantage point and his strategy on how to bring this movement forward further. But that's enough of an introduction for now. All the rest will be covered in this episode, so I'll hand things over now to John Kemp. So look, John, it's great to catch up with you again. It's been a while. How are you doing? How are things going for you? You know, life is incredible. We have an amazing team of people that I get to work with every day at AEA. Uh, it's it's really, I had several conversations with folks at conferences in the last month, and we were we were speculating and guesstimating how many, um, how many agronomists are there, how many consultants are there in the space 
that really have the depth of experience and the depth of knowledge to help a farm successfully transition to regenerative agriculture um, on scale and to do that really well and to make that uh, an economically viable transition. And uh, this is this is just a guesstimation because we don't really know. But our guesstimation is that in North America, there's probably in the vicinity of 100. And I think we're being a little bit generous. Hmm. And if that's accurate, that means half of them work for us. <laughs> and that's both uh, a really good and a really bad spot to be in at the same time, because on the one hand, there is this desperate need for trusted technical advisors, and it's really good to be in our position. And on the other hand, we don't need a hundred, we need a thousand yesterday. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see this space evolve. So the short answer is we're doing incredibly well as an organization. There, there is so much momentum happening in this space, um, and we are really well positioned to be able to um, to be able to participate with a lot of growers. And uh, there's just so many things happening with regenerative ver verification happening um, at, at a renewed pace. It's, it's an exciting time. It sure is, man. I'm so excited to hear that from your perspective too. And what else have you got going on outside of AEA? I, I see your name pop up and all sorts of little side projects going on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, what are you playing project. around with outside of your main job? Um, I don't keep track of how many there are, but some, my wife would probably argue there's too many. Um, but there's, uh, my, my hobby that I get to play with when I want to relax is beekeeping. I have about a hundred honeybee colonies and I really enjoy that. There is no other pursuit that I know of that, that gets you engaged. If you want to do it really well, it engage, gets you engaged with the local ecology on a landscape level almost like anything, unlike anything else. Like you have to really quickly develop a deep understanding and appreciation of various nectar sources, pollen sources, when, which plants are blooming when and so forth. And so I really enjoy that. And then um, I, I also um, participate with um, Biome General Partners, or excuse me, with uh, Biome Capital on um, investing, making investments in regenerative farmland and regenerative uh, or um, it's we're essentially an asset investment fund uh, in hard assets on regenerative to facilitate the transition to regenerative agriculture. I'm the executive editor of Acres USA. I host the podcast, uh, the Regen Ag podcast, and um, probably some other things that I'm forgetting. But yeah, that's that's the basis. That's enough to keep anybody busy. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really interested to hear that you got into beekeeping. I recently got to see a window into what regenerative beekeeping can look like through a workshop in or near um, Berlin in Germany. And I was absolutely fascinated by basically what was like land race bee breeding in order to create colonies that were hardy against the Varroa mites and the other issues that are causing colony collapse disorder. Are you looking at it from that perspective as well? Can you imagine me looking at it from any other perspective? <laughs> fair enough. Um, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, uh, yeah, Varroa mites, of course, have, uh, there's this interesting dynamic where there are a few um, isolated areas, such as Cuba, for example, where the honeybees have developed resistance to the Varroa mites, and they're essentially the, the same foundational honeybee genetics, as I understand it, as we have here in North America. Um, so there has been, uh, there has been very limited progress i think you could almost argue with with a few outliers there's been almost no progress made uh industry-wide 
um, in, in developing varroa resistant genetics here in North America. Uh, but that's beginning to shift. There are, there are a handful of individuals who have made significant progress. Um, and uh, I, I am hearing rumors that the, the expectation is that that will scale industry-wide over the course of the next five to 10 years. So that's really exciting. Um, and just in, in my personal beekeeping work, obviously it would be unkind and it would not be good husbandry and good stewardship to to have susceptible honeybee genetics and to not manage the mite loads. So uh, I do manage them and I do monitor them very closely and apply treatments if needed, but all those treatments would be, um, I suppose you could say organically compliant treatments, even though sure. that there isn't such a thing here in, in the US, but they are non-synthetic miticides, let's put it that way. Got it. Oh, really interesting. We'll have to talk more about that another time, but moving on from, the side gigs and the, the hobbies. What I'd really like to discuss with you today is your overall view from having worked in this space for a while, become one of the leading thinkers in transitioning to regenerative agriculture for many different types of enterprises and the amount of data coming in from your company and from some of these other projects that you're working with. How are you seeing this movement advance right now? Is this starting to reach that scale that you talked about when we first uh, discussed this on the podcast? Are you on track there? Are things moving in a good direction? Uh, we are on track. Things are moving in a very positive direction. I'm very confident uh, the, the goal that I had set was to have 80% um, of all farmland globally be using regenerative agriculture models by 2040. And we're well on track to, um, to achieving those goals and those targets. But the pathway is turning out to be different from significantly different from what I would have expected. And I, I don't remember um, the scope of the conversation we got into the last time we spoke, but um, I believed if, if you would have asked me this question probably as recently as five years ago, um, I believed that people would be motivated by opportunity and by potential economic upside. And that if you could demonstrate a case, if you could make the case that a farm can be uh, more profitable uh, in many cases, significantly more profitable using regenerative agriculture management systems, then they would make the transition to doing so. And in the majority of cases, that isn't true, to my surprise. Um, in, 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 the majority, in the majority of instances, many, many growers are um, unwilling to make significant shifts for an economic upside. Now, there are Outliers, of course, there are innovators, there are early adopters, and that's kind of where we are on the uh, adoption curve at this point is with the innovators and the early adopters. Um, and, but if you look at, if you look at the stories of the people who are in the regenerative agriculture space right now, and you ask them what motivated them to change and to go down a different pathway, I would submit that the majority of those transition stories are that they began transitioning as a result of duress, financial stress, or um, health, illness challenges uh, in the family or personally. It could be economic stress, it could be health stress. There, there is some type of, of significant duress that occurred for most people to begin the transition process. And um, that's 
I don't know, I don't really expect that to continue for the long term. Uh, there is a, there is an element where I expect that that is partially a, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Not an artifact, but that's partially an expression of the current stage that we're at, um, that this this technology is still very nascent, it's still emerging, these, these regenerative farming systems are not yet widely, I don't know if I should say that they're widely known, what is not yet widely known is um, farmers having the understanding, the knowledge, the know-how, or the readily available resources to figure out how to transition, those pieces aren't yet widely known from a practitioner perspective. And um, for that reason, many people are still hesitant um, to begin the transition process, but I would submit that we are approaching the point where um, we, we are now seeing growers who uh, want to begin the transition process, not because of personal duress, but because of the success that they observe others experiencing. And that is your first signal and your first indicator that you're getting to the early adopters stage on a, on a larger scale. Okay, yeah. So it's not just the people who are experiencing issues in their life or, or problems with their enterprises that is causing them to take different steps or explore new things. You're starting to see the spillover effect from people who have begun to find success with these methods and it spread out throughout their wider communities. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I really expected that these these farming systems would first proliferate significantly in high value crops in fruit and nut and vegetable crops where there is significant economic upside. And instead, the areas where it's proliferating the most rapidly is in broadacre crops, um, corn, beans, small grains in the Midwest and the high plains here here in North America. Um, and also, it's spreading the most rapidly in the areas with the greatest climactic stress. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the dryland zones, Kansas, Nebraska, eastern Colorado, um, western Oregon, and so forth, it's, it's those areas, it's basically the areas that have the greatest climactic stress and the environmental stress that then frequently results in financial stress that are uh, most rapidly adopting regen ag on a, on a landscape scale. Do you feel that the popularity of this movement, the diffusion of ideas through documentaries and uh, videos or articles and, well, podcasts for one, is fueling this as well? Or is this not as big a piece of the puzzle as it seems to be from the media side? I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that question. Um, I think it is helping to raise awareness, even inside the, uh, the farming community, it's perhaps helping to drive conversations. But I would say that generally for people who are unfamiliar or who are uninitiated within the farming community, they still tend to be relatively dismissive because what the documentaries and the pieces don't show uh, and can't show just, or not easily, just because inherently in the format that they're communicating in is the depth of practical, domain knowledge and scientific knowledge that is needed to execute successfully and to, to implement successfully. Like it's how, how could you imagine a, a TV series or a documentary of, of really famous doctors who did really innovative things, inspiring other doctors to change their practices. Like you, you can't begin to convey the complexity of the decision-making process in a documentary. And so, my sense is that inside the farming community, it's certainly 
um, raised conversations and it's um, it's it's sparking interest and it's facilitating connections. And so there is some of that happening, but my impression is that not nearly to the degree that these conversations are occurring in the larger population. But the reality is we need both. And so there, I'm, I'm certain that they're going to be a net positive. I'm not certain that their direct impact on the farming community is as significant as people might expect. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's take this from a couple of other perspectives now. And part of the reason why I wanna talk about this with you is that you've been bringing new ideas onto your podcast recently that I hadn't heard in the earlier seasons. People like Charles Eisenstein and Kuhn from the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture podcast. Who knows? Are you going to start to look into policy and politics and maybe community, <laughs> community efforts or, or grassroots projects as well? I mean, there are so many other factors in the broader community that agriculture is a part of. You explored the mindset with Charles Eisenstein. How do you see the mindset as being an essential part of this longer term shift and a resilient change in the industry over time. That's fundamental. Uh, I've been saying for a decade, uh, one of one of my frequent quotes has been that change doesn't happen in the field first, it happens first between the ears. Mm. And um, actually, the word that I would use, frequently use is transition. Transition doesn't happen in the field, it happens first between the ears. And so developing a a different mindset or a a different worldview, I suppose, is uh, is kind of the fundamental piece. You know, when you when you look at organic certification, uh, it's a fairly common story that farmers first became organically certified because of economic opportunity, and then over time, as they immerse themselves in the system, they um, began to appreciate the underlying philosophy and the approach of organic farming and organic agriculture. And there are also many stories of farmers who um, approach this from an economics perspective first and never transitioned out of the economics perspective and would readily tr uh, transition back to uh, contemporary agronomy if it were not for the economic upside. Um, so the there is without question a significant shift in perspective and in relationship that needs to happen in how we think of ourselves in the in the greater context of how we view the world and you know i think this is important not just for farmers as individuals but for everyone who wants to support farming and support the regenerative agriculture transition uh, there are there are two fundamentally different worldviews about how we view our role as people in the world. The first is the worldview of humans are parasites, that we are destroying the planet, we are following our own nest, uh, we are destroying uh, landscapes and ecosystems. And the best way to regenerate ecosystems is to remove humans from the landscape. And then there is this second worldview, which is that in our coming from our highest and best place as stewards, we can function as a hyper keystone species and we can manage landscapes with love and care and attention. And in fact, the fastest way to regenerate landscapes 
is to have more caring stewards on the landscape. So not to remove people from the ecosystem, but to have more caring people in the ecosystem. And I certainly subscribe to the latter, as I think probably many of our listeners will as well. Uh, but these are two fundamentally different worldviews in, in how we view people in, in, uh, in our role in the world. And if you think about people and farmers and ranchers in particular, but others uh, as well, as stewards, it quickly becomes obvious that if we want to regenerate ecosystems and landscapes on scale, the one piece that there is a desperate need for is more stewards. We do not have enough people putting footprints on the landscape and caring for that landscape. We need more, millions more. And uh, this, this is going to become one of the pieces that we need to develop over the next 10 to 20 years. And perhaps you feel the same way that I do, that AI is a poor surrogate for pairing stewarding people on a landscape and that you can't simply put artificial intelligence into a machine and hope that it'll have the nuance of relationships within a landscape that people would. Well, the problem with art, there's a couple of problems with artificial intelligence. One is that it's artificial. And second is that its intelligence does not capture the, uh, the intuitive knowing of a landscape. Um, and, and the the interactions of living organisms like we, we we as a species with all of our knowledge all of our smarts haven't demonstrated the wisdom of how to be good stewards on scale uh, like we have many isolated instances but so how the these artificial intelligences are simply a proxy for the information that we put into the system and the majority of the information we put into the system is crap from an ecosystems management perspective. And uh, so I think as, as AI uh, is emerging now and over the coming years, um, there is the possibility, there is the potential for it to be a valuable tool. And its value as a tool, I think, will depend on the degree to which uh, AI is used as a tool to enhance people and help people be better instead of being a tool to replace people. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm curious too, because we very briefly touched on your background, how you got into this line of work and how you moved from being, I think I got it correctly, you were selling chemicals or you were one of the chemical reps uh, in your early days in farming to your own mindset change what was your journey? What were your connection points that really made those little paradigm shifts and put you on a different trajectory? Yeah, mine was a combination of both uh, both uh, financial duress and health stress at the same time uh, within within my family. So I grew up on a family fruit and vegetable farm in Northeast Ohio, um, relatively small scale. We were about 25 acres um, altogether. And my father was the pesticide distributor for the local region, as well as all inputs, seeds, fertilizers, equipment, supplies, et cetera. And um, I, I was applying pesticides to our fields. I had the responsibility here in our Amish community, we only go to uh, school and formal education through the eighth grade. And so when I graduated from the eighth grade at the age of 14, uh, I was given the responsibility of doing all of the drip irrigation and, and foliar applications of both nutrients and pesticides. So uh, I was had a lot of exposure to pesticides from the age of 14 um, with my dad's supervision. 
And then at the age of 16, I got my own pesticide applicators license. And uh, so I was, I was, I'm intimately familiar with using a lot of these materials. Of course, this is now 15 years ago or longer. Um, and things have certainly evolved in some ways, but in many ways they haven't. So uh, then we had a really interesting experience in the early 2000s, 2002, three and four, we had three consecutive years in which we lost greater than 70% of our crops to a variety of different diseases and insects that we were unsuccessful in managing with pesticides. And you imagine three consecutive years of a 70% crop loss, that's a significant economic blow that's difficult to recover from. And this was in spite of frequent intense pesticide applications. And on many of our crops, I was on a five-day rotation of spraying pesticides uh, instead of a 10 or a 14-day rotation. And it seemed, uh, we started, we had started growing vegetables in 1994. So we were a decade into it at this point. And it seemed the more pesticides we used, the worse the problems became. And then we had one of those epiphany moments we rented a field from a neighboring farm that bordered right up against one of our own fields. And there were, uh, these fields used to be long narrow strips that were being tilled and planted up and down the slope because of how narrow they were. And it was inefficient to grow, to go across the slope. Well, now that we were managing both fields, we switched the road direction by 90 degrees and planted across the former field border. And this in 2004, this field was planted into cantaloupe the soil that we had been farming for the prior decade with vegetables and that annually got the intense pesticide applications at harvest time we had 80 percent of those leaves infected with powdery mildew and lost the majority of the crop and the new soil that had not had the historical pesticide exposure we had no powdery mildew when i say we had no powdery mildew i mean we had zero you couldn't find any there was this sharp knife line right down through the center of the field where the former field border had been. It was so pronounced that there were healthy vines growing right in among the unhealthy vines. But the plant variety was the same. It had been planted and managed in the same way in the same time. So what was the difference? That was really that question that drove me. Uh, and so it was the combination of that plus a growing realization and awareness of the uh, negative health impacts that uh, pesticides were having. We had some systemic health issues in the family that drove us to look for different answers, uh, that the mainstream uh, medical approach was ineffective in helping us with. And so as a result of, of those two motivators and, and that experience, um, we started trying to understand how we can grow crops without pesticides and discovered that there's an entire body of knowledge on how to um, manage nutrition and biology to enhance plant immune systems that never was discussed in mainstream agronomy. Like well, I had training as an agronomist, my dad had training as an agronomist, and we had never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And once you had started down this different path, how important was it for you to have mentors, to have people to guide you and open you up to new possibilities? Was a lot of this self-taught in finding resources, books that exposed you to new information? But I also know you've interviewed and mentioned quite a few people who have been influential in your own thinking and your own advancement. Yeah, um, both are important. I, I certainly was motivated to go out and, and look for information, but uh, I've I've been very fortunate to have some exceptional mentors and advisors over the year over the years. And so my my early process, I was also very fortunate to 
live in a community with an incredibly supportive library. Uh, there's an interesting little tidbit here, but the, in the I live in the fourth largest Amish community in the world. Um, and obviously we don't use televisions or radio or really have access to technology. And so people read a lot. And our local library, uh, the Middlefield Public Library, which is a branch of the Jaga County Public Library, has the highest per person book lending rate of any library in the nation. Um, well, and, that's what we'd be proud of. Yeah, and they that library really went above and beyond. I, I would come in and ask for very rare textbooks. I still remember um, was researching the work of Fritz Albert Pop and biophotonics. And they I asked for a couple of his textbooks that were apparently quite rare, and I didn't know that, but they got some of those books for me through interlibrary loan from Germany. Um, so basically, whatever book or reference material I asked for, they were able to get for me. That was that was a that's a very important part of the story. And then the other important part of the story is I started asking questions about plant immune systems and the differences that I, we had observed in this cantaloupe crop. I became connected to the community at Acres USA, uh, to Arden Anderson and Gary Zimmern, Jerry Bernetti, Bruce Tinio, um, Don Huber, Jerry Hatfield, and others. And the following growing season, um, well, even that winter, the winter of 2004, 2005, I started having regular phone conversations with many of these individuals and asking them questions and they really guided my learning and, and gave me uh, direction on what books to read and where to get additional information. And then during the growing season, um, I had this ritual where every Tuesday morning, I would take a walk across the farm and make extensive notes on what I was observing, how plants were responding, what was happening, what applications had been made. And then I would spend half a day on the phone with different mentors and I would ask them a very similar set of questions. And while there was some overlap in the answers, there was there were enough unique perspectives and experiences that I was still I was able to learn from all of their um, collective knowledge. And it was just uh, it was an expedited education. And I continued that pattern for several years until I eventually um, when I found that advancing eco agriculture that took on a slightly different flavor because now I was no longer working with one farm. I was working with dozens of farms and soon hundreds of farms. But um, yeah, it's there's I owe a tremendous credit to the mentors that I've had to our local library and also to my parents for giving me uh, the permission to challenge the status quo and to ask why and to ask why we were doing things a certain way and the opportunity to change them. That's fantastic. And it constantly keeps coming up in the conversations that we have in our own farmer groups uh, here in Europe as well. The people that we learn from and the ideas that are disseminated through these conversations are essential for expanding our realm of possibilities and sparking interest into what could happen if we learned a little bit more on this side or on the other. And I know that AEA has really, well, like you said, it has a big portion of the people that you feel confident who can coach and guide people through the difficult process of transitioning to region ag. And I can only imagine how much you've thought about the necessary qualities and characteristics or skill sets that someone should be able to uh, express or have in order to do this job well. Can you talk about what some of those are if you've seen patterns throughout people who are effective in this line of work? 
Yes, um, there are a few patterns and they, um, on one hand, they'll appear obvious and in some ways they are also surprising. Um, there is one interesting facet. We, we have, in our work at AEA, we have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of time and energy and resources in, in developing an intensive training curriculum for the new people joining our team. Like they, they will literally spend years training um, and working with our existing team in the field to develop the depth and the breadth of ecosystems knowledge that is needed to have a high degree of confidence and a high degree of certainty in making agronomic recommendations in, in this type of an ecosystem. Um, and, and by the way, this is, this is one of the places where obviously this is a scaling problem and this is an area, a domain, a specific domain that I believe AI will be able to help us really accelerate in helping to make people better rather than replacing people and helping to uh, condense that timeline. Um, so it is interesting. Uh, we, we have had people go through this training program with with um, multiple PhDs in, in one instance and, and several instances of people who had PhDs in agroecology and agroecosystems. And where people have uh, communicated that they learned more in the first 90 days working for AEA than they did in their PhD. And uh, on one hand, that's <laughs> that is a bit flattering to hear. And on the other hand, uh, it makes you question the um, makes you question the educational model um, that is being used in, in mainstream education systems. But um, that as an aside, there is this interesting phenomena where we have over the years tried, I don't know the exact number of times, but maybe a dozen times or more um, to bring in very experienced agronomists, people who have had 20 or 30 years of experience and train them, or even in a few instances, people with less experience as a decade or 15 years of experience and train them in the different approach, the different mindset. And our track record as of today is zero. Not a single one of those individuals was successful in transitioning in the long term. Because and maybe that's a testament to our poor ability to pick individuals because I've certainly observed people outside of AEA making that transition. Mm -hmm. uh, on several occasions. So I'm not saying, saying that this never happens. It certainly can happen. But when it came right down to it, to making the recommendations, like we have one of the things that we're really known for at AEA is our ability to, to stimulate biology to produce the majority of a crop's nitrogen requirements. And when it gets right down to it, if you have a crop with no nitrogen requirements and you have soil analysis reports that show that the soil can more than adequately supply 100% of the crop's nitrogen requirements and sap analysis that show the crop has abundant levels of nitrogen. When it comes right down to the wire, there's a certain group of, of people who were not successful in making the transition. They could not comfortably make the recommendation, apply no nitrogen until there is a measured need. There is this background programming and that's what it really is, is programming is that we must apply 100 units of nitrogen on a corn crop no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been an interesting phenomenon is that uh, who, who are the people who can successfully make that significant mind shift and that significant transition? Um, other important characteristics. One of the really important characteristics is to be able to be empathetic and to meet people where they are with no judgment. That's so important. 
Bill O'Brien, one of my favorite quotes, the outcome of an intervention has nothing to do with the skills or the knowledge of the intervener. It has everything to do with the place within from which the intervener comes. And the, the purpose of a coach, a consultant, a subject matter expert, a trusted technical advisor, whatever title you want to call it, the purpose is not just to have deep, thorough agronomic knowledge, but also to be there as a, as a coach to provide confidence and reassurance that there is someone who has successfully walked this pathway before. And to persuade people, there, there will come moments in time when it's necessary to provide encouragement to take the next step. It's, it's okay at times, at times it's necessary to step a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Um, and so being able to have that empathic relationship is extremely important and that, that coaching type relationship. Then the third piece is salesmanship. And sales and selling is something that far too many people have an inherently negative reaction to. But they need to be, we need to begin thinking of ourselves as that we are constantly, every moment, we are selling ourselves. We are selling our ideas. And the better we can do at communicating our ideas effectively, um, this is a sales job. And the, the point that I've made frequently is that there are, there are many people today who focus on providing education, providing education to, and information to farmers and to others. And that's certainly valuable and necessary, but all the education in the world achieves nothing until someone takes action. We have to provide not just information, but also inspiration to the point of action. There has to be a decision and there have to be changes made. And that is a sales job. There has to be the ability to sell and to communicate effectively. Um, and that's, that's another aspect of coaching. An aspect of coaching is selling people on the idea that um, they have a higher version of themselves within themselves, that they can actually play the game better, that they can be better. And, you know, there's this, uh, this fascinating little clip on YouTube of Viktor Frankl describing why the idealists are actually the real realists. And um, the illustration that he uses is that when you are flying a plane to an airport, um, you never navigate the shortest distance from airport A to airport B. You always take into account crosswinds. And so you head at an angle towards airport B into the crosswind. And the degree of the angle is, is determined by the severity of the crosswind. And that all of us as, as humans, as individuals, we all have crosswinds in our lives. We all have conflicts and we have different things that are uh, pushing us in a direction different from the direction we would want to go in. And so it's not enough to be a quote unquote realist and to shoot for the real target. We have to be the idealist and strive to be the best version of ourselves and do the very best job that we can in transitioning our farmland so that we hit the realist target. Yeah. And therefore, idealists are the true realists.
I want to process that for a second because it seems like there are so many qualities in there that are quite applicable beyond the job description that we're talking about here, right? To be question. effective and a uh, person of integrity in the world, many of those same things apply and can get you very far in life outside in, in other realms of work as well. And I think it's it's just something to, to dwell on a little bit as something to aspire to, regardless of whether you're trying to help people transition to a farm or, you know, be effective in any other line of work. Um, Absolutely. It's called being an effective human being. There you go. So what are the, on the other side, the qualities that you started to observe of effective recipients of assistance or coaching from the farmers that you've worked with who, you know, respond well to new information, who take it upon themselves and personal responsibility to make sure that action is taken on that information and that have the qualities, let's say, in observation or flexibility or resilience or um, tenacity, right? that is required for this quite lofty goal? There are three, I mean, you, you've mentioned many and we could go on a long list of the various qualities, uh, but there are three distinctive outliers that um, directly correlate to the degree of success. Those These farm managers that are extraordinarily successful, whether they are in contemporary agriculture or whether they, um, choose to go down the pathway of regenerative agriculture, there is a set of three distinct characteristics that separates the extraordinary farm managers from the run-of-the-mill farm managers. And again, I'm sure that this set of characteristics doesn't just hold true for farm management, but in many other aspects of life as well. Um, the, the first one is extraordinary execution of all the details. Like it's you can tell uh, in any farming operation when the details matter, the details are prioritized and execution is excellent. It is, there is nothing that gets dropped. There, there are no dropped balls. That type of farm operation will be able to transition to regenerative agriculture much more easily than any other because Regenerative agriculture management systems share one feature in common, two features in common. They are much more knowledge intense and they are much more management intensive. And usually the management intensity is required in the form of proactive management rather than reactive management. So if you are in the mind frame of preventing problems and uh, managing proactively to Let's, let's say um, managing nutrition and, and the microbiome to prevent disease or insect susceptibility, that is a piece that these farms naturally excel at because they are already in this management mindset. Um, so that is one piece. The second piece is in how they think differently about finances and economic management and money management. Um, a, and I'll just... I'll use the uh, Pareto principle, the kind of the 80-20 rule of, of where they spend, of where farmers spend their personal time thinking about money. So, and thinking about the farm's finances. The most successful farm managers spend 80% of their time thinking about how to increase revenue and profitability and 20% of their time managing costs. And they delegate, and in many cases, they delegate the cost side of the equation 
to accountants, to bookkeepers, to, to other people. Farm managers who do not strive to excel frequently do the exact opposite. They spend 80% of their time thinking about how they can cut costs and 20% of their time and energy thinking about how they can increase revenue. That is a very distinct difference that we've observed in, um, in this outlier group of the most successful farm managers. And then the third difference that is very distinctive is that um, related to the crop that they are growing or, or the, the crops that they're uh, deriving income from, they want to deeply and personally understand the agronomic influences that, that influence yield and quality, marketable yield. So um, I've, I've had the privilege of hosting many of these people on my podcast. And when people listen to, let's say, Stephen Beerlink describe how he manages his apples in his apple orchard in Washington, he makes a point of spending an hour or two every day walking through his orchard. He makes a point, his, his trees are foliar fed every 48 hours through the growing season. Like this is, this is management intensity to an extreme. And Stephen is amongst the foremost experts in the industry about understanding apple tree physiology. He knows exactly how many reproductive buds he needs on every spur. He knows exactly what the spur leaf size should be. Uh, the point that I want to make is that relative to understanding mark, what it, the agronomic factors that contributed to marketable yield, these farmers do not delegate this knowledge to subject matter experts. They will delegate their accounting to a bookkeeper, but they will not delegate understanding apple physiology to an agronomist or a consultant. They want to know themselves. They want to personally understand what are the factors that contribute to this plant producing a, an elevated yield and having elevated performance. They want to know it themselves and they manage accordingly. And so this, is, this has been interesting for us as, as uh, consultants, as coaches, as agronomists and, and helping people transition through this, this phase. It's actually the people who demand the most of us, the people who... Um, they don't just want us to tell them what to do. They want to deeply understand why we're making the recommendations that they're making. Those are the most successful at transitioning always. So there are, I mean, you could go through a long list. I actually um, put a webinar together that's four or five years old at this point on the unique characteristics that we noted with these exceptionally successful farm managers. But uh, from that webinar to today has just continued to further crystallize like those are the three characteristics that are standouts. That's really interesting and what it makes me think is that there's probably just a very small percentage of any population of people that have these types of strong characteristics and maybe that presents one of the issues why, to scale. Why would that be true? You feel like this is something that is not inherent to the personality or uh, the character of a person. This is this is something that can be taught or learned. Absolutely, these are personal choices. And yes, it's true that uh, there might be um, personality biases in one direction or the other. But these are all learnable skills. This this is this is not uh, 
something that's confined to people of a certain educational background or a certain type of life experience. Hmm. I would like to <laughs> equally believe that. I have not found that to be quite as uh, confidence inspiring in my interactions with people, that there is a type of person that is conscientious enough, that is studious enough to really excel and put in that amount of effort when it's not required of their job. But I would also very much like to think that is something that could be learned and and taught likewise. Um, well, I guess I have the, the privilege of working with hundreds of people who fit that description. So uh, I would like to think that it's very possible. Well, maybe there's some confirmation bias in there too in how you screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, remember now we're talking about farm managers and farmers. I'm not talking about people that we Fair enough, uh, as well train. as well and i'm not saying that it's such a small percentage that uh, and none of these aspects can be learned uh, maybe i'm just not quite as optimistic that that it can scale or, or be taught as as broadly as you might think though i hope i'm wrong pretty confident you are <laughs> good <laughs> uh along this topic as well where do you see the common barriers and challenges that either derail the people who do not succeed or that are consistently overcome by those who do. And I'm talking beyond the typical fluctuations in weather and the variables that come up in a very volatile business such as farming, maybe a little deeper than that. Yeah, common barriers that can derail people or that successful people overcome. It's an interesting question. Um, I would say that um, occasionally, this is partially true of uh, as a as a reflection of a point that I made earlier that some people come into this as a result of financial duress. Um, it happens occasionally that uh, farmers come into this space uh, and begin adopting regenerative agriculture, and they are in such a position of duress. Um, and if things don't go perfectly right from the get go, they fail to survive. And that, that is always painful. It always hurts when that happens. But I've seen that happen on a couple of occasions um, that they're already in such a difficult financial um, condition that um, overcoming that, even if they weren't transitioning, would have been extraordinarily difficult. Um, so that's kind of an obvious piece. I don't know that there's much to elaborate there. But then um, um, a piece that I see that I personally believe is very important for a farm financially and economically is to decommoditize yourself, whatever that means. That might mean further processing and value adding. That might mean organic certification. It might mean regenerative certification. It might mean uh, selling direct to um, CPG companies or to um, customers instead of going through the supply chain that can mean many different things for many different people but uh, in in our work uh, in my work with biome capital i've now had the opportunity to look for for really intensive in-depth look at um, the financials of a number of different farming operations and it's been intriguing to observe that there are farming operations who are the epitome of they are the standard bearers of regeneration of what it means to be a regenerative farmer like they have a track record of decades of doing all the right things making amazing improvements in soil health and soil regeneration it's like these are these are the types of people you want to support financially and to see 
see grow and succeed. And they are not investable because they have not decommoditized themselves. They're still selling mainstream crops, corn, beans, small grains, and so forth. And the financial, the financials are not there. Um, and so it's, it's quite, um, quite revealing to see that happen, not once, not twice, but over and over again. And so I think, um, uh, look, if uh, I, I gave a keynote, I actually gave several keynote presentations this last year where I talked about the future of regenerative verification. And this is a topic that I feel very passionately about, and I, I have some in-depth thoughts around it. But the summary, the bottom line summary is that we do not need regenerative certified farms. We need regenerative verified supply chains. The problem, there's a number of problems with having regenerative certified farms, but one of them is it once more places 100% of the responsibility on the farmer and none of the responsibility on any of the other players in the supply chain. And a part of regeneration, regeneration today is being too narrowly defined. It's being defined in terms of regenerating soil health, and that is a problem. It needs to be expanded to also include regeneration of public health, regeneration of food quality. Um, I'm using those two as kind of synonymous. Uh, it also needs to include regeneration of e ecosystems and landscapes at a landscape level. Um, and for any of those pieces to happen, the fundamental piece that needs regenerated is we need to regenerate our capacity for stewardship. In other words, we need more people in the landscape. How do you get that? You pay them and you pay them well. It's intriguing to me that we can have young people well-educated, passionate, dedicated. If they went to work in financial services or uh, in many different uh, service industries, they can earn four to six to 10 times what they can taking that same education uh, and that same level of focus and dedication into the farming space. That's appalling and we need to realign our priorities. So if we want collectively, we as a society, if we want to regenerate landscapes and to have regenerative agriculture, we need more stewards. We need more people who care. The only way we're going to get that is if we pay them well. And so therefore, we need to regenerate rural economies, rural communities. We need to have a larger percentage of the food dollar that gets spent going back into rural communities and not being captured by, uh, by CPG companies and retailers. And in order for that to happen, we need regenerative verified supply chains and not farmers. So this is where the whole economics piece comes into place. I, 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 as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about this project uh, or this, uh, this process. And I actually lost sight of the original question that you asked me. No, no, that's okay. This is actually, I'm glad you took it in this direction. This was the next line of questioning that I was headed down and I'm back to agreeing with you full heartedly. <laughs> so really how much, autonomy and the ability to make decisions do the farmers have do you notice i mean like you said regeneration at a farm level is kind of the same way we're all being told to manage our own carbon footprints without any of the industries that supply our necessities taking responsibility for theirs it's a way of offloading responsibility and you know not only is it unfair but it's unrealistic how much absolutely how much do you think that 
the larger industry really plays a role in tying the hands or pre-making the decisions that farmers have access to and how much responsibility should they be made to take? Oh boy. Yeah. Can you run that past that question past me one more yeah, time? Yeah, so it was a bit loaded. Um, with the limited scope of options that farmers really have access to, we're often telling uh, primary producers, growers themselves, like, okay, we'll just change your practices or sell a different way or manage your land differently. And I am not under the impression from the people that I speak to that they really have that many options given to them, depending on who they're selling to, who the industry or the middlemen that are involved in the supply chains are, how much autonomy should we expect farmers to have in making this regenerative transition and how much responsibility should the other players in the industry take for this? Well, I'll answer your question in two ways. Um, one is that I, I approach life uh, from a perspective of, uh, from a deep, a perspective of deep personal agency and responsibility. I believe that I am completely 100% responsible for the reality that manifests in my life. And uh, that is uh, that is at once both very intimidating and very encouraging. It's very intimidating to accept responsibility. And it's also very empowering because it means you now have the agency and the authority to, to make the changes uh, and to manifest a different reality in the future. Um, so let me just offer that thought as kind of a personal context from how I generally approach these types of conversations. Secondly, uh, you are absolutely correct that, um, many farmers have, if, if you are a larger scale farmer, um, or if you're producing certain types of crops and certain types of products, then the options that you have available to you are in fact, very, very limited, um, here in the here in the U.S., I mean, I could I could give a multitude of examples. If you're growing premium quality, high protein, high test weight wheat in the Midwest, there is no if you if you have a thousand acre farm and you have a couple hundred acres of wheat, there is nowhere for it to go. The, the only the only two milling options are artisanal mills that have the capacity to handle maybe four or ten acres of wheat a year, and the mills that take unit trains. And there's almost nothing in the middle. Um, and the same is too true of beef processing and, and a whole, a whole range of, of other different types of food products. So you're absolutely right that the options are limited. And so, uh, to come back, I think the question that you're asking is a reflection of the comment that I just made a bit ago is, um, what if the supply chains were responsible for regeneration and not individual farmers? Like we are already asking farmers to do a lot of things without the rest of the supply chain taking any responsibility taking any risk and yet taking the majority of the reward when we think about regeneration regeneration at its most fundamental level is about regenerating relationships regenerating relationships between soil microbes and plants between livestock and the landscape between people as individuals and between organizations. It's at all levels. It's about regenerating relationships. So when you think about regenerating relationships, what does a degraded relationship look like? And what does a regenerated relationship look like? Since we're sticking with that particular verb, a degraded relationship, an unhealthy dynamic is a relationship 
that is extractive and transactional. I give you this in exchange for that, and I'm going to seek to take advantage of you for my personal gain at every step. That is an unhealthy, degrading, degenerative relationship. And that is unfortunately the relationship that most farmers are in with both their uh, input suppliers, their vendors for seeds and fertilizers and equipment and so forth, as well as their offtake, the people who are buying the product that they're producing. It is a very transactional and extractive relationship that in many cases they have limited autonomy and limited choices to choose from. The opposite of that type of relationship is a relationship that is collaborative and symbiotic and synergistic that seeks the greater good for all the entities involved and is willing to sacrifice a bit personally for the benefit of the greater good. And uh, an example of what these types of relationships might look like, uh, this is a personal story I actually visited with some of these farmers and, and the processors in the supply chain um, that this is a story that's now seven years old. I really need to refresh it and, um, and to get it published. Actually, you might have better access than I do being local there in Europe. But this is a story in the Netherlands of, uh, of the grocery supply chain, grocery store chain uh, called Albert Hain and their produce distributor organization partner called Bakker and farmers. So here are three, if I lump the farmers into one category, by the way, Bakker is a uh, fresh vegetable packer processor distributor and they are a cooperative that is jointly owned by uh, a number of the a number of the farmers so you could argue that it's two organizations but I think um, in the way that they operate they are functionally three organizations and the interesting part about the relationships between these organizations is that uh, first for context Albert Hain as it was related to me seven years ago as at the time they were distributing 70% of the fresh fruit and vegetable supply chain in the Netherlands at the time. And Bakker and the farmers are supplying everything that is being produced locally. The interesting part about the relationships between these three organizations is that not a single one of them has salespeople and no one has buyers. And there is no negotiation between the organizations um, or not in the, not in the adversarial type Way that we usually think about negotiations. The farmers actually set the prices for the retail prices that fresh produce is sold at on the grocery store shelf. And they the farmers determine when sales are going to be held and on what products. And they have complete open book transparency and they know the margins. Every person in the chain knows the margins for the other two participants in the supply chain. These are examples of incredible relationships that are symbiotic and synergistic, that are not extracting from each other. And um, the cherry on top of the cake is that they have a goal of delivering fresh produce from the field to the homeowner's refrigerator in 24 hours, which is a goal that they achieve greater than 90% of the time. That's an incredible story. And it's those types of relationships that we need to develop throughout the entire supply chain. Because um, I agree with the, the sentiment with which you ask your question is that it is, in my opinion, unrealistic and unreasonable of us uh, 
to ask farmers to do more while rewarding the retailers and the CPG companies for making claims on their labels that are not being passed on to those farmers in far too many instances. Yeah, that's a really good story to illustrate what is potentially possible. But I mostly think back to like, I just had a recent conversation with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures, who has really been on this kick for a long time of how unfair it has become to label U.S grass-fed beef when it is produced, grown, and imported from many other countries. The only thing that is U.S. about it is that it is processed here, or that it even passes only through one hand of processing. And there's so many more examples like this. We are continuously seeing that despite the heroic efforts that many growers are making, they are not seeing the benefit of their increased efforts, their stewardship of their land, these continue to get sequestered by the middlemen, by the food distributors, the retailers and such. And I've been in conversations with representatives of different aspects of that industry. And I am not seeing a lot of hope there at the moment. I don't know how it is back in the United States. I've been a little bit cut off from that. In the meantime, while they make many claims and pledges for, let's say, reducing climate impact or increasing social responsibility. Most of this, I'm under the impression, is marketing and as a way of increasing the profitability while riding the wave of popularity that regeneration is seeing at the moment. Um, exactly. In other words, it's extractive. It is. And it's for personal gain. It is. And fortunately, I've also heard some alternative models from people like Mark Shepard and a few others who talk about nested cooperatives in which the producer has a share of every level of production all the way down to retail while still maintaining autonomy. And I mean, he can present that in all of the detail that he's thought it through and, and trialed it through his areas. And I don't see these being taken up in the same way as the popularity of new management practices or caring for soil. And ultimately this is unlikely to result in the revolution that we currently think of regenerative ag as being when all these other steps in the process of actually getting onto the plates of people are missing. Do you see reason for hope in this? Do you see changes being made in areas other than some isolated cases and stories that you've heard of? Well, the systemic change always begins with isolated cases and stories that I've heard of <laughs> and that we have heard of. You always begin with early, with early movers. And so I think, um, you know, the, the one group that has been noticeably absent from um, marketing claims, making any marketing claims around regeneration is retailers. CPG companies have, but when I look at the, when I look at the historical pattern of what happened with sustainability, there was lots of noise around sustainability CPG companies and others were making claims on their um, sustainable, sustainability efforts, similar to what is happening today with regeneration. And then along came Walmart. And Walmart invested first in themselves as an organization becoming very sustainable with all the different metrics and measurements. They used extensive data to try to become as sustainable as possible. And then from the data that they developed internally, they took that data to their suppliers and 
partially coached and coaxed and partially forced them to also adopt those same sustainability initiatives within their organizations for their vendors. And flash forward, Walmart completely remade their image and their brand as a retailer from being this very extractive agent in a community to being much more highly regarded as a retailer. And they owned, I mean, they were a decade ahead of everyone else in actually um, demonstrating significant advancements in sustainability within their whole organization and throughout their entire supply chain. And I find it intriguing that Walmart, again, is remaining silent. Walmart was the last to the sustainability conversation and they ended up owning it. And I see the distinct possibility for there being a repeat of that scenario because lots of other people are talking and making noise, but not actually doing anything really significant. And there's an easy opportunity for a significant retailer like a Walmart to come in and actually own the space again. Hmm. Um, so there's, there's that really interesting dynamic. And uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. I use the, exa the Netherlands example of uh, Albert Heinenbacher, but there's also the example in France of, uh, and other European countries of Blue Blanc Cour. Um, sometimes the argument gets made that, um, well, how can you justify paying farmers more if that is going to increase the retail price point and remove the access to food from certain segments of the population? Blue Blancour has shattered that argument by having this large-scale community engagement process by communicating or by by engaging um, aspects of the medical system, government, and the retailers in this dialogue. They have been able to uh, produce um, documented produce animal products: beef, meat, pork chicken and eggs and maybe milk as well that have a measured omega-3 omega-6 ratio for which they have conducted extensive human health trials and have known measurable human health responses and they are able to reward those farmers and pay them a premium and on the grocery store shelf the price is identical it does not cost any more than the mainstream um, produced commodities do. And that is an illustration, an example. And by the way, uh, as I understand it, I had, I had Pierre Vail, one of the co-founders of Blue Blanc Cour on the podcast several years ago. And at the time, uh, he said that their premium quality animal products represent something like 40% of the supply chain in France and a significant part of the supply chain in 18 other European countries. So this is not small potatoes. This is a significant impact and it demonstrates that in that particular example there was obviously room for the retailers and the rest of the supply chain to swallow some of the margin differences to be able to pay the farmers a premium price and maintain the retail uh, shelf price yeah and those are phenomenal examples that it would be great to see other companies start to adopt some of the practices of so where do you feel that the influences in the external 
drivers to the food industry beyond, of course, producers, we've kind of moved past them now, are to incentivize better practices, create business models that are much more equitable and fair along these chains. Yeah, I, um, I'll answer your question in, in this way, uh, if I'm understanding it correctly, is there is, there is a growing um, desire in the investment community to invest in efforts that support regeneration of landscapes of ecosystems and so forth. And that is um, honorable and exciting. I'm, I'm really excited to see how this, uh, how the landscape evolves over the coming half a dozen years and longer. But what I find interesting is that today, this is still a very young space. It's still very emerging. And many investors, it's almost safe to say most at this stage, say all the right things and they express all the right things. But when it comes down to it, uh, they are hesitant to assume much risk or any risk. And of course, a part of fiduciary responsibility is minimizing risk. Uh, and that's, that is inherent in their mandate. So I certainly understand that. But what I see happening in the landscape is that there are quite a number of of funds in the regenerative agriculture space who want to invest primarily in farmland because farmland is safe. It's a very safe investment, even if the even if the operating enterprise of the regenerative farm is unsuccessful, it's still a safe investment. You really on, on some level, you really can't go wrong with that type of investment. And yet that is not the type of financial partner that farmers need. And it's not really the type of financial partner or the investment opportunity that has the has the potential for the greatest impact and to be the greatest leverage point for change. So the there are many leverage points for change. And I, I was uh, on Cohen's podcast a couple of years ago where he asked me the question of how if I had the potential to deploy a billion dollar investment fund in the regenerative agriculture space, how would I do that? And uh, <laughs> I think he told me later, I gave him the most thorough answer that he ever heard of, but I, I, I was prepared. Yeah, I was yeah. prepared for that question. Um, so there are many of those pieces that we could talk about related to uh, financing, operating loans, operating capital and so forth. But the single biggest need as I see it is facilitating market access. Investing in the processing facilities so that Midwestern wheat grower with several hundred acres of premium quality wheat doesn't have to go into the commodity supply chain. Um, investing in processing facilities for beef. Um, wh whatever facilitating market access is going to mean many different things at, at different points along the supply webs. But um, that is that is really, I think, the where the biggest need and the biggest gap is for most farmers. Many farmers are... Um, they have limited autonomy, as you pointed out, and they simply lack the individual and in many cases, the collective resources to um, decommoditize themselves successfully because the necessary investment and infrastructure to accomplish that doesn't exist. Does this pair with concepts around decentralized processing and distribution and even retail? Um. It can, yes, not necessarily, but frequently the answer would be yes. Okay. 
Yeah, because I know this is another area of the space that gets talked about a lot and then breaking up the hegemony of large corporations. And I mean, that kind of leads to the next side. We're talking about money and investment right now, but a lot of what allows this to flow is policy and legislation. Where do you feel that the levers or the potential is for positive change at the governmental level? Hasn't it been historically true that the gold rules? <laughs> so um, how do you change that? Like I'm, I'm optimistic and I'm pessimistic at the same time. <laughs> and I got done earlier in this conversation saying that we all need to be idealists if we want to be the real realists, but my goodness, policy sure seems to, to uh, challenge that perspective. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> so I think, um, the existing agribusiness interests here in North America, at least the context that I'm the most familiar with, are very entrenched. There is intensive and extraordinary amounts of money spent in lobbying on the farm bill. And um, can there be significant shifts in the farm bill in the future? Um, I would like to think that the answer is yes. And I also don't underestimate the difficulty that that will probably entail. Um, and I'm focusing on the farm bill as one particularly influential piece of legislation, but um, just policy and making policy changes in general has, um, it is the area that I'm least experienced in. It's the area that I'm least qualified to have an opinion about. And it's also an area that I'm the least optimistic about. So there's the context for you. I'm not particularly optimistic, but I also don't really have the basis to have a qualified opinion. So you can just disregard everything I said. <laughs> well, I appreciate the Amish humility there. Um, do you think it's possible to have this kind of real shift, uh, reach that lofty goal of reaching 80% in the industry to regenerative production without the farm bill changing or for us in Europe, the common agricultural policy, are these necessary elements to reach that kind of fundamental shift that's necessary or can it be done without them? In my opinion, it can be done without them. It would certainly be dramatically expedited with them, very dramatically. But when you look at the existing changes, like the headwinds are always the strongest earliest on in in a change of practice or change of worldview or the, the, the sea change that we're looking for, the, the current is always the strongest early on. And the fact that there is such a significant shift already occurring in spite of the, the existing headwinds coming from government, pol government policy, both, both the headwinds that are opposed to regenerative practices and also those that favor the status quo, um, the answer is yes, I believe it can happen without significant policy changes, but it will be harder and take longer. Okay. And what are going to be the things that drive the change with the governmental portion missing? Is it going to be grassroots efforts? Is it going to be farm communities banding together? Do you see industry or other players playing a role in this? Um, yes, yes, and yes. And also... Um, without the larger community coming together in a more cohesive effort for uh, to to facilitate um 
increasing the capacity for stewardship and to facilitate better economic flows down to the farmers and the Will Harris example, without that happening, the remaining fundamental driver you have left is the markets and survival of the fittest. Yeah. And that's really an unhealthy dynamic to consider to considering the, the outcome that we want to produce and the intentions behind the outcomes that we want to produce. But the reality is that um, in our experience, the regenerative farmers rapidly become the low cost producers. They not only are the highest yielding producers, but they also have the lowest input costs, which means that financially they are the fittest. They also have the greatest resilience to, to climactic stress. They have the greatest resilience to financial stress. And so if you play this out on a really long term time horizon, let's say 30, 40 years, uh, perhaps less than that with increasing climate vagaries, um, purely financial and economic survival of the fittest will favor the regenerative farmers. And so with all of these different perspectives that we've talked about now, the different leverage points of moving these things forward, the things that are holding it back. Where are you putting your efforts? Where's AEA doubling down on and and putting all of your resources into making this move faster from what you're able to affect? Well, we're we're about to make some really significant announcements in the next three to six months. I'm not really at liberty to talk about them at this point, but let's just say that um, there have been we're we're, we're very well. Um, we're in, we're positioned in exactly the right place. And it was, this was no accident. Um, I, I just, I learned from our own experience on my parents' farm that I grew up on and the farms that I worked on um, early on when I first started AEA. Recently, two reports, when I say recently, it's probably in the last four or five years, maybe six years now, uh, two reports have been written on the leverage points to facilitate adoption of regenerative agriculture. One of them was Jennifer O'Connor's report that was sponsored by Patagonia. Uh, an earlier report was written by Betsy Taylor's group, Breakthrough Strategies and Solutions, if I recall the name correctly. And of the various factors that they identified, there were only a couple of factors that they agreed upon were very high priority. And the one that really stood out for me at that moment in time, um, when these first came out from my own personal experience, was the desperate need for trusted technical advisors. Mm. This is really the, the reason that AEA exists and the, has taken on the business model that it has is because of this recognized need from a very early stage. And the point that I made a little bit ago is that there are not nearly enough of these trusted technical advisors, and it is a scaling problem um, because of the intense training and requirement uh, and training and education that is required. And um, so these are two problems that we are intent on focusing and resolving and using all the tools at our disposal in the next, uh, in the very near future. And one, we are intent on solving the scaling problem, both by increasing the number of humans involved and dramatically, and also making those humans much better in their roles and with, with the use of technology. So there's some really exciting announcements coming in, in, that, um, in that vein. And uh, the good news is that there is tremendous desire for um, 
trusted technical advisors and the information that we have, not just in our work at AEA, but other, uh, some would say competing, and I would say collaborating organizations, uh, we're all um, stretched. We have a lot of demand, both here in North America and internationally. Uh, we are having, we're beginning to do quite a bit of work in South America. We're having early stage conversations about expanding into Europe and Australia and other parts of the world as well. So there are a lot of interesting and exciting things happening. The momentum is the momentum is contagious. You know, success breeds success. And there's a lot of success that we've built over the last decade. Marvelous. Well, I'm definitely excited to hear that you're in conversations about expanding further out. I know a lot of the people that I'm in contact regularly would love to hear an announcement that some services or some products would be available from AEA here in Europe. Um, definitely keep us posted whenever you've got those announcements to, to share. And I'll keep, keep your eyes and ears open because it's probably coming sooner rather than later. Fantastic. Well, look, John, I really appreciate you taking the time, giving those thorough answers for such a, a wide range of perspectives and angles that we've looked at the current state of regenerative agriculture and the different players and well, influences in where it's at at the moment. Um, this is something that I've always relied on you and many in your space as references to how far we've come and how far we still need to go because of the quality of the conversations that you have on your show. I really appreciate you putting out that as a resource. It's been so helpful for people like myself and many others in the community here in Europe. Um, and I look forward to hopefully staying in touch and having another conversation before too long. Absolutely. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for facilitating this conversation, for asking thought-provoking questions. And for all of your, all of your listeners, um, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm, I'm always open to having conversations. You can reach me by email. You can reach me on social media. You can reach me on my website at johnkempf.com. Um, there's a lot of information we put out into the world. So thank you for all you do and uh, happy growing. Thanks once again to John. I'll link to all of the contact information that he mentioned there at the end, as well as a couple of my favorite webinars from AEA for those of you looking to learn more about his work. You can find all of those on the show notes for this episode now at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.